0: Hi, welcome to the Food in the Edge podcast, and I'm your host JP McMahon. Hi, you're listening to the Food in the Edge podcast, and I'm the presenter JP McMahon. I'm here today with Matt Orlando. Uh, Matt's zooming in from Copenhagen. Matt is the chef patron of Amass. Uh, you're very welcome today, Matt. Thank you, man. I'm happy to be here. Good, good, good. I, I want to uh, start like right at the beginning, Matt, and uh, uh, I know you're you're from San Diego and. Uh, like what, what brought you to food at the at the very beginning or what, what um what age were you when you realized food was 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 something that you were passionate about?
1: I was I think I had been working in restaurants since I was basically fourteen years old. But it was always a a, a job to make money to go snowboarding. That's where the snowboarding comes from. I was wondering where the snowboarding came from. Exactly. That it was always a job to make money to go snowboarding as much as possible. But then I was I had, when I, after high school, I moved to the mountains, I snowboarded for a few years and, you know, you figure out that only the very top 1% of all snowboarders could actually make money doing it. <laughs> so I actually, I, but, and I, like I said, I worked in restaurants that whole time as well, worked at night, snowboarded all day. And then I had moved back to San Diego uh, from the mountains. And I I worked for a gentleman named Francis Pro. I was about 20, 20, maybe 21. And I started working for a gentleman, Francis Perot. He was born and raised just outside of Paris. Worked in Paris with all the big chefs when he was young. And that was the first time I had really been exposed to this, like, like a true passion for food, ingredients, um, and just life itself. And how life and and food were so intertwined with each other. And it just really kind of blew blew me away. And I was always so passionate about snowboarding and then to be around someone who was so passionate about food and food was already a big part of my life because I had been doing it since I was 14. And then having, just realizing that there's there's this core, like, it doesn't matter what you're passionate about. Uh, as long as you're passionate about something, you can, it really it can drive you in so many ways. Just hearing Francis talk about all his experiences around the world and going to these markets and working with these chefs and meeting all these people and traveling. And that really would, became something I, um, chasing that, became something I was really kind of, it, I became addicted to it working for him and and he would take me to the markets and and that was the first time i had ever really worked at a high-end place where ingredients were so important and Was it a French style place or? Cooking out of La LaRousse, it was amazing and I really value that time with Francis and I still speak with Francis all the time when I go back to San Diego and I, I would say, you know, I've, I've been lucky enough to work for some big chefs in my career and and Francis still for me I I can out of, out of all the chefs I work for I consider him my mentor um because oh, cool. he really put me on this path and he always used to say to me um food is life and life is food and they're so intertwined and and we are very fortunate to work in the industry where we actually provide something that is necessary for life uh, to go on on planet Earth. Of course, we, we provide it in an environment that is that's probably not necessary for life to go on Earth, but the act of eating um, and how that connects people, that he really taught me that. And that became something that I found to be really important and to, to to understand at a deeper deeper level. And all the traveling I've done throughout the years is really, you know, it's funny when I was younger, when I would travel, I would, it was always to go for like a, a, a food experience. Mm. and. What, is, what am I going to experience on this trip? And who am I going to meet? And what producers I, and ingredients? And, you know, when I travel now, I look forward to all that stuff. But what I really look forward to is, like, understanding the culture where I am and how food fits into that culture and how people interact with each other via food. That, for me, has been kind of... It's almost like coming full circle with working with um, Francis because, you know, when you're young, you're just passionate about working hard and the ingredients and you you kind of forget about what goes on around that and and the people um that are involved in that and now that you know i'm older and and i I see the value in that so much
0: that sounds really cool. but it's, it's interesting you mentioned like you mentioned travel and culture because for me those things are so are so um are so tied to food and it's not always something that people see particularly when people go for a meal i mean sometimes the experience is very focused on what's in front of them but i think that as you said, for me, food was always—I mean, chefing for me was always, uh, as for you said, snowboarding. It was always as a method of traveling because I always knew that you could cook anywhere because people needed food. So yeah. wherever you went in the world, you could probably get a job as a cook because, exactly. um, because of that. And like, w- from from that point, you're you're still in you're still in San Diego. I mean, yeah. w- what is like, what was the, I suppose for me or for you rather the next big step uh, to? To I suppose to to where you are now and and how you made it I suppose how that journey from from San Diego to to Copenhagen took place.
1: Well, it was it was maybe I worked for Francis for three years and I you know as I worked for him this kind of this desire to kind of get out into the world and hearing about all his adventures the adventure he had coming from France all the way ending up in Vegas and to San Diego and everything that happened in between. That really, like you said, like traveling. I saw cooking as a vessel to travel. And I, you know, I had never been to New York. Of course, at, at that time, this was the early, early 2000s. Yeah, the, I mean, this is the beginning of 2000, 2001. Um, that's what like New York was just in its heyday. I believe, of restaurants. It's like all the, the classics, like Gotham Bar and Grill and Danielle and Mutes and all those restaurants. And I really wanted to be there. I had never been to New York. I had never been past Colorado. Wow. Um, <laughs> and, but I knew I needed to be there. And I, I basically went to Francis one day and I said, yo, chef, this is what I want to do. I'm going to get my notice. I'm going to leave in like three or four months. And I'm, this is my goal. And and he said, you know what, Matt, that's amazing. And, and you're going to, you're going to, you're going to get there and you're going to work hard and, and you're going to have all these adventures. He's like, but just remember if you go down this path that you're talking about, this kind of upscale dining and working hard, he's like, you're never going to be rich. He's like, if you want to be rich, open a pizza place. <laughs> I think someone said the same thing to me. Or a chip shop. So I, I just moved. I sold my car for like $5,000 and moved to New York with that in my pocket and didn't have a place to live and didn't know where I was going to work. And I just went to... Uh, I had five restaurants on my list, and I was only going to work at one of those five restaurants. And I went to the first few, no job, no job. Then I went to one, and and uh, he's like, you know, I have a job for you. This is actually one that Francis hooked me up with, and I have a job for you. But you can't, I don't have a position for two more weeks. And I said, you know, I don't have a lot of money, and I, I cannot not work for two weeks. I have to work. So then down the street, number was Oriole and that's when Charlie Palmer was in his heyday uh, in New York and it was like that that was like when the was modern American cuisine was like really coming into its own and and I went to Oriole just walked in cold turkey and and I and Charlie Palmer was sitting with Dante the chef cuisine and I said they said what do you want and I said I, I want a job and they're like, what are you doing right now and I said I'm looking for a job and I said okay Go put your stuff downstairs you're you're gonna you're gonna work tonight the fish cook didn't show up and you have a trial and i was like i don't have any knives i'm like in a suit they're like it's fine you wear your your nice shoes and your fancy pants and we'll give you a jacket and <laughs> an apron and you can cook fish tonight And i was like what the fuck? <laughs> so i i went i i worked service that night and uh i had my my girlfriend at the time who i moved out to new york with she was we were living in like jersey at my cousin's house it's like it's like hour and a half dude. Obviously like cell phones back then weren't like a big thing. So I was like, I just, I didn't come home until like 3.30 in the morning. She was like crying, <laughs> uh, but I got the job and I started the next day. I, for the first three months, we lived in Bayonne, New Jersey. It was an hour and a half commute. So I basically slept like three hours a night and went into work and and that kind of started me on this projection. I, I worked for um, Charlie Palmer for a couple of years and then I worked at La Din for a couple of years. And then at Libertad Dan I was like, okay, now I'm, I'm ready for, like, what's next? Mm. At this point, my girlfriend had left me because I was working too much. And she moved back to San Diego. And just, you know, the whole, the whole normal song and dance about that. Um, and I was like, okay, what's next? I'm, I want to go to Europe. I actually went to Eric. I went to Eric and he, he actually told me that he's like, this is a mistake. You're making a mistake. He's like, you're too old. I think I was like 25 or something. <laughs> like, you're too old to go to Europe. I was like, well, I'm, I'm going. And then Charlie, actually, Charlie Palmer really hooked me up. He, um, he actually said to me, he goes, you know, I'll send you to Europe for a year and pay for everything. If you come back and work for me for, you commit through uh minimum four years for me when you come back and I'll pay for everything for a year if you work in Europe. And I said, no, I'll pay for myself and see whatever happens. Yeah. And I, I seriously came to Europe all, again, like no money. Like I'd save some money up and I, I, Staged at, or I started at uh, uh, La Manoir in Oxford. Then through, I was supposed to go to Spain, and then Spain changed all their work contracts and all that, and st- I couldn't go to there. And so I actually got a job at Fat Duck, stayed there, and that led me to uh, to Noma um, because I one of the I were I lived with a bunch of chef parties, and we rented a room to start and this girl came in from Noma for a stage, and her and I became really good friends. And then I we I ended up coming to Denmark just for a week and stayed for two years as sous chef at Noma and then went back to New York as the executive sous chef at uh, Per Se. And then got the call from Renee to come back as the chef cuisine at Noma. Three years there. And then. And what,
0: year, what year was that when you took over the chef's cuisine at Noma? 2010. 2010. So that yeah. was. that uh, how, uh, When did Noma open? It was uh, 2005, was it? Four.
1: so i started at noma in 2005 at the outset and i started there about a year after the open less than a year i mean it was i i had so many friends i mean noma was not even a blip on anybody's radar back then but i had come to know it through um lena who was dodging at the pat duck and i actually met renee because he came to eat there while she was dodging there um and i just came up for a week to check it out and uh and i just renee wooed me with this uh August evening, it's midnight. It's still kind of light outside, having a beer by the harbor. It's like 25 degrees, 30 degrees outside. And I was like, he's like, so what's what's up? Do you want to stay? And I was like, yes, I want to stay. <laughs> stay for two years.
0: How formative was that, was uh, was Noma's philosophy in your thinking up to that point? Or do you think, like, did you, were you building a philosophy of food? Or did you even think about that all the way through, uh, New York and then to the Fat Duck, or was it just kind of observing other people's philosophy?
1: Yeah, for, for me at that point, like from from New York to to the UK to Noma the first time. Um, that was me kind of just because I had always it was like pretty classic French that I grew up cooking, uh in my like between um working for Francis and I mean Oriol was very much based in classic French technique, um, and then La and then La Manoir. So Pretty classic French. And then going to the Fat Duck was just like a like, yeah. like an explosion. This whole new world that I was just became I I read like Harold McGee on food and cooking from front to back while I worked at the Fat Duck and like really understand starting to understand the science of food. And the Fat Duck was amazing and it, it taught me so much about thinking outside the box, but really understanding what's happening when you're cooking, like the science of it. Um Cause once you understand that and it's not just someone telling you, do this because I told you. Then all of a sudden, once you start understanding the science of things, then then it becomes like a this like all these this information you can start assembling and understanding cuisine a bit better. Mm. And I and the fat duck was like a like I said, it was it was the polar opposite of anything I'd ever done before. So I was like a kidney candy shop. But it, I mean, for me it came to go but I'd all, also was like really rooted in this deep respect for ingredients which the fat duck is very uh is very much a, like a technique and process based kitchen um and so i think after a while at the fat duck i was while i was happy being there i was i started to understand what i really wanted where i wanted to be and how i wanted to be cooking at that point and this kind of modern techniques accompanied with this deep Kind of respect for products and and where they come from and how they're produced and and that whole journey along the way um i was i was missing that a little bit um so when i came to noma for that week of um just that stage to check it out i was just like oh my god this is like everything new and exciting about food that i love from the fat duck but accompanied by this deep um Desire to find the best ingredients possible, and that was for me. And, and also being in Scandinavia with all these ingredients that you know, classic French cuisine just doesn't use. Um, mm. Different mushrooms and berries and stuff that grow wild, and going out and, and foraging. Oh my! god I had never foraged in my life. And going yeah. out on these these foraging trips on our days off, and with like five or six of us, just spending hours in the woods picking herbs and that. That, that just became something I was just mesmerized by.
0: At, at what point did, did you, I suppose, did you start thinking about a mass? And about, I suppose, and also about about staying in Copenhagen as like, in terms of like having a your wife and your kids and all these, like
1: where you are now, which is like, which well, that, is very much there. That didn't even happen. I mean, I had, that didn't even happen until I had gone back to New York. My wife and I, who I met at Noma, like right when I started the first time. Um, We both went back to new York. three years or two sorry two years at noma um then we went back to new york and we both thought we're moving to new york that's where we're going to settle down uh we both had jobs at per se she worked in the dining room my wife and i have worked together for 17 years now Um, wow yeah it's been i've i'd say four nights i've slept on the couch in 17 years so (laughs) (laughs) that's good going that's great i think we're good we're good Um, so we went back to New York to work at Per Se, and and I had a, as a, as a sous chef there, I had a three-year contract, um, and so, and I, I really thought, you know, we had a plan, you know, I want we want to do our three years at Per Se, possibly move out to California, uh, to the French Laundry, um, do some time there, and then open our own place, and, you know, after being back for about two, little under two and a half years, um, I started. We started talking, and my wife was really excited about New York. I mean, I think she could have stayed there for longer. But we started talking and about what do we want to do next. And I think at that point, opening a place in New York for us was like, I don't know, maybe this is not the place we want to open a restaurant. And then Renee just kind of called me out of the blue, and he's like, Hey, you know, I I I need a chef cuisine. I'm just racking my head of all the people that have come through here and, and every time I just come full circle, it, it comes back to you. So what uh do you want to come back and be the first chef cuisine at at Noma? And that was right when they had one uh best restaurant in the world for the first time. And uh I was I was of course, Yuli and I have been talking about it. This kind of came, it's kinda of the the icing on the cake, and you know, it wasn't hard to convince my wife to come back because the whole family was here. Yeah. So we came back and I, I told Renee straight up, it was at, so when I was at Per Se, um, before I go back to come back to them when I was at Per Se, I was, uh, I ran half of the services. So there's 10 services a week. You have two, you have the chef cuisine and the executive sous chef that it's um, run five and five services. And so that's when I started and we changed the, the entire menu every single day there. And so that's when I started writing menus and starting to, um, understand my creative process personally. And I also I had to be reined in a couple times by Chef Keller. He, and he would come in and be like, oh, so t- tell me about the menu you put up today. And he would look at me and he'd be like, that's interesting. He's like, he would look at me really intensely. And he'd be like, so the chef, you have to ask yourself, would Thomas Keller do that? <laughs> <laughs> I would be like, mm, okay, maybe we'll take that foamy stuff off and <laughs> put a blanc on or something. Um, but that, that, I, I, have that experience, I per se, though, I I honestly have to say, was out of all the prior to opening my own place, out of all the restaurant experiences I've ever had, was the pinnacle of my career before opening, um, my own place, and that's because you know, working for Thomas Keller is like joining a cult, Mm. and The first three four months it's really difficult but then all of a sudden and this sounds i don't know this sounds weird but you kind of give yourself to the environment and the, the the ethos and the philosophy and the philosophy there is of course about ingredients and cooking but it's also about the culture and how you exchange information and how you work with your colleagues and and this deep respect for everyone around you and how you work and it's something that I've never experienced. Um, after that, and it's something that I, I hold so kind of dear in my heart. And when you work for Thomas Keller, you you develop a certain amount of OCD. Mm. He himself has OCD, and he, you you're forced into this like there's no gray areas when you work for TK. You you work you work black or white. Information is there. You take that information and you process it um, and you succeed based on how you process the information that's given to you. And you are given all the tools to succeed. It's up to you to take those tools and use them efficiently. And that has, I mean, into my personal life that even, and the fact that my wife worked for him for three years as well, like we're pretty OCD in our personal life as well, still based on that. And so that that experience really transpired into the rest of my career organizationally and uh, also the culture that we created out of mass. And because I think it's so I mean a culture, you know, it's you, you I, I've been lucky enough, you know, I, I 2000, early 2019, I was like really struggling with like trying to balance work life organization business everything and i i just i like sucked it up and i went and saw this like like it's like a neuro i guess his name is ed lay he's like a it's like he understands the neuros like neuroscience and of your brain and how it works and process information i just i just spent a couple sessions with him and really helped me understand like making decisions and thought processes and stuff and and one thing he always says, you know, it's, it's like the physical activity of company, cause he works with like big CEOs and shit like that. And the culture, culture can kill a business. And if you're not conscious of the culture that's being created in your, in your business, whether it's a corporation or, or a restaurant, then you will, you will, you will eat your business from the inside out. And so kind of re exploring that with him and knowing what I come from at, at per se and that culture that's been created there out of respect and, and how you communicate with each other has really put a mass on this trajectory of just, everyone's here is conscious of the environment we work in. Because I've worked in a lot of places where the only thing that's important is what you put on the plate. And the the, the path to get there is irrelevant. It's only what's on the plate. And that creates a toxic culture. And it affects what's on the plate in the long run. So how we've we've worked so hard to create a culture that has respect for that entire process. to what goes on the plate and what goes in the glass because it affects, if your staff is not happy, they're not going to deliver a type of service, um, whether it's cooking or being with guests that that you want. And it's easier for them to kind of deal with more difficult situations when they arise in a restaurant because they do. if they're kind of strong in their head about what our ethos is here and what we're trying to achieve and there's clarity in that. So we've really spent a lot of time in the last couple of years, like really focusing on that Um, and then intertwining all of that into the creative process and letting everyone be part of that creative process. And that it's, it's really interesting to see how it's panned out over the last couple of years and, and where we are now, we're about to go through a big kind of staff shift. Over the next three months, which I think everyone in the world is going through right now, people are having life-altering decision makings through all the last year and a half, and having extra time to think about what they want to do. and And I feel more confident now. It'll be the biggest staff switch we've ever gone through since we've opened. Generally, people stay here like three, four, or five years. So, but I'm I'm more confident than ever now bringing all these new people on because we're confident in the culture that we've created here, whether and all that. Because we due to our aggressive sustainability profile, that's so integrated into the culture and the mindset and the thought process how we work on a daily basis. And I feel that we're more, the most confident we've ever been in informing people of how it is to work here and and bringing them into this culture and kind of nurturing, um, giving them the tools to succeed um, when they get here.
0: At what point when you opened a mass, did you, did you realize like, i suppose or were you considering the issue with sustainability and waste or was that always there or did that develop when i suppose when you opened a mass i mean similar to us when we opened a near, i mean where we are now is not where we are where we were at the beginning and we kind of learned on the ground but and you're also influenced by by your
1: peers but what what way did you envisage a mass when you first opened it i mean it's when i think about a mass when you first opened it was so far from where we are now. It was actually the, I mean, I was so anti-Nordic when I opened the mask. I mean, we had foie gras on the menu. I didn't know that. Okay. It was actually a really good fucking I, <laughs> I don't doubt it. We used to have foie gras in cabin. customers kept giving out. So eventually I just took it off the menu. Uh, yeah. And that I mean, was the end of it. But we had foie gras. We got vegetables from Italy. Like, it, it, I mean, it was so far from where we are now. And I think it was like after we've been open for about six months and we had our first winter closure. And um, it, it was three weeks long, and it, it allowed me to, for the first time, to take a step back from that first six months we were open, and really examine what a mass was. And I had someone ask me a question. She goes, "What is what's important to you? And moving forward, you have systems in place. And so, what what's 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 a mass? What's important to you?" I didn't know how to answer that because in my mind, a mass was just we wanted to serve interesting food. Good wine and just create an, a a new experience of fine dining with graffiti and, and hip hop and all this stuff. But the word responsibility just kind of popped into my head all in the matter of three seconds when we were having this conversation. I didn't say anything and I just trying to understand what that word meant. I spent the next couple of weeks trying to understand what that meant in the concept of a restaurant responsibility because I'd never worked at a restaurant where the word responsibility was even in the dia- the uh, the dialogue that we used in the restaurant. Um, the vocabulary did not contain that word. And so, uh, when I came, I, I, I thought I could have figured it out. I, I, Like you, we went through it organically. We didn't really understand where we were at. And we came back, we had our meeting about four days before we were going to open. And I said, listen, we would open six months. We have systems in place. We're going, forget about it all that. We're starting over. And this is, and everyone just looked at me like, are you, are you smoking weed right now? Are you, I like what's, and I said, this word responsibility um, is going to be the guiding light in everything we do. Ordering wine, food, how we treat our guests, how people walk in service, everything, every decision we make, is this the most responsible way that we can do it? And if it's not, how do we get to the point where it is the most responsible way, because that's a process. You you know that it's a process. You can't just be like, okay, we're a sustainable restaurant. You yeah, can't yeah. do that. You'll you'll shoot yourself in the head, and it needs to be a process to get there. And, and you'll work eight years into it, and we uh, we've figured a lot of stuff out. We've also figured out that we are have a long way to go as well. We we can be better, um, and but under that 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 process doesn't present itself until you get down the rabbit hole a little bit and you start to understand what it is to be a responsible restaurant. Um, and, you know, what's come out of this, I'd say in the last couple of years is the Amass Research Space, which is something that's a place that is um, more geared towards processes and techniques. And we we found out really early that, you know, this agenda that we're trying to push, when you do 50 people a night, it's not a large amount of people to kind of, talk about what you're doing and kind of to push this agenda that you have it's not a lot of people to touch so how do we engage this agenda on a larger platform and you know the last I'll have to say that you know as as shit as 2020 and and half of 2021 has been for me personally and I, I think for the business in a way it has been an amazing time um not monetarily obviously but from a creative process, from a realization that, you know, what's important to us and, and focusing in on that and cutting away all the fat and the bullshit that comes around a restaurant. And and the last five months, especially, um, being closed um, has allowed myself and Kim, who's head of R&D, and then Christian, who's my director of operations, to really home in on the research base. And we have, that is now, we figured we figured out that we need to engage large format food producers. And we have been doing that pretty aggressively and consulting over the last five months with the time that we've had. And we have been able to divert tons of what's perceived as waste in these large format food producers into something that is delicious that they can actually resell again. Um, So we're, we're starting to create, I mean, we're definitely not making, we're not making the positive profit yet up in the research space with consulting, but we're definitely finally having some income come in from that. Because over the last eight years, we've developed all these processes and techniques that amass that can easily be adapted to a larger format and diverting food waste uh, from the from the waste stream and putting it back in. You know, we always talk about upcycling and upcycling is, I think there's, you can upcycle and you can downcycle. I think when you take, say, spent beer mash, and you give it to animals, that's downcycling because you're you're it's a product that you're that has a high value that you're then selling it for a low value so how do we take these products and we upcycle them for human consumption and so that is something that we are really working on and, and you know whether that's in the form of uh, an ice cream or an amino acid sauce or, or something along those lines it's something that humans are consuming and it's not just going to animal feed
0: yeah, and I think what I think that particularly when you're that kind of work, I think is is really relevant to to educate, I suppose, sectors like contract catering or but people that are feeding like eight thousand people a day. Yeah, and like and, and, and who have a really good philosophy or yeah. or that who want to develop as opposed to who just want to focus on what's on the plate and then everything else is just oblivious to everything. else. so I, I definitely think I think that there's there's or I hope that there is great um uh power behind that because yeah. i think that that's where you can go from feeding 50 people to how do i how do i change the culture of food around me through my restaurant yeah. because it's it's great pontificating about feeding 50 people or will we feed 25 in a year? but if i can't change kava a little bit where we do 500 on a saturday well then i think i'm failing because it, there's no point in just doing it in a little microcosm and, and saying saying look we're doing okay because we have one restaurant but as you said i think the important thing is that it's a process and you need to start somewhere and it's not a light switch it's not, you just don't flick it and you're all of a sudden you're sustainable i think it's not only food but as we've mentioned already it's work practices it's it's staff it's how the staff relate to each other it's it's how the whole restaurant fits um yeah. and um I just want to. I want to ask you two other things. One, one we talked about a bit, but I definitely, for me, like as a chef restaurateur, uh, I do think uh, like a positive work environment is. Uh, we, you've talked about it a bit is is so important, and I think that you've got like it's all mixed up with Me Too and consent culture and like all of that. But but for me, like what what I've realized over the last two years of COVID is that I think educating the staff. Is, is really important. And sometimes, as as we were just talking yesterday, against their own will, because yeah. we were saying like, well, what if they don't want to be educated? And I was like, well, I think it's our responsibility to, to educate, because for years we've had people say, in Cava, people in Aneer, and there's always been this kind of high and low where, oh, they're the guys up there and they do this little thing. We can never get there. And I, and so COVID has made me realize because all the staff in Aneer had to go work in Kava because Aneer was gone. Yeah. And, and, that, and that rubbed off in terms of the way they work and the practice. But also they found it difficult because all of a sudden they were feeding 400 people. yeah. And, and the thing that they had looked down upon, they were like, okay, bit of respect here because we've just been uh, we've we, we've been I suppose uh, isolated. So for me going forward, it's definitely like how do I how do I create a better working environment for the guys, but also how do I get them out the other side? Yeah. And a bit like what you were talking about with with Thomas Keller, like how do I make sure when they leave that they have had the best experience for them? Uh, and that's something I feel responsible now, rather than just seeing Chef come, Chef go, I would say, like, how can I get them to know what I do? So hopefully, when they go on. But I, I think that for me, amass is, is is one of those places that I think where where that 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 is that has already
1: been happening for for a number of years. Yeah, I mean, that's. I mean, for me, the 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 proudest moments in, in my life is not like getting on the top fifty list or all that bullshit. It's like the proudest moments are when I have a chef that leaves here. And then six months later calls me and says, chef, I'm, I'm having this trouble with like convincing my bosses to let me do this project with all our kale stems or this or that, or, or something in the operating in the ethos that we operate here. And, and can you help me with that? And the, when I see a former staff member pushing aggressively the agenda that we push here out in the world, that for me is the, I, I cannot ask for more than that. Because that is like that's the most important thing to me is that people are leaving here with with the tools and the knowledge to to further because a mass I mean just to say I, I, I'm a, I think that restaurants are a super materialistic thing it's a like, it's like how do we people not everyone can afford to pay what they pay and to drink and eat and all this stuff so how do you make a restaurant like a mass mean more than just this materialistic act of going to a restaurant. I mean, it's educating people to go out to push the agenda that we push here. Um, it's doing things outside the four walls that positively impact the environment, your community. Um, I mean, you. I mean, for me, like what you've done in food on the edge is a perfect example of that. You, you've used everything you've created in Galway as a platform to jump off and do this massive thing that impacts so many people. And so, how can restaurants do stuff that is not so only not so much focused on what's happening on the plate and in those four walls but how can how can they have a larger impact outside those four walls and working sustainably educating your staff um being transparent with your staff i mean i think what i've found during COVID, especially is that being as transparent as possible with your staff about how the business runs i mean we were asking staff here to take pay cuts and, and do things that it's uncomfortable as a business owner to ask your staff to do that, but it was necessary for us to survive. And, but in doing that, I found, I mean, I, through COVID, I was 100, I, I would just put the the KPIs on the table in front of everyone. Said so this, this is the numbers of this restaurant right now. And this is the numbers in 2019. And this is our projected for 2021. Salaries, everything on the table, full transparency of our financials to the entire staff. Mm. And that proved to make these decisions because I don't want to just make decisions and people be in the dark about, well, I'm, I'm taking a 5,000-corner-a-month pay cut, and I don't know why. Because, obviously, COVID happening, so you know why, but, but what's the implication, what's the positive effects of me taking this pay cut and the long-term effects of me taking, taking this pay cut? So, I think transparency is, and, and I'm going to continue being this way because it just allows your staff to be part of the process. Not just be working in in two or three people making all decisions above you, but being transparent with the decisions you're making and why you're making those decisions. I think has no, been-
0: I think yeah, mm-hmm. I absolutely mm-hmm. concur with you. I've always like, I mean, I think for me, transparency came before possibly in came before responsibility in my mind. I mm-hmm. because I always maybe it was just the questioning of people asking in the restaurant. And I think it actually started with the customers saying, why does this cost that? And I was like, I was like, I have no problem telling you what it it would break down a dish. And I was like, why are restaurants uncomfortable with with transparency? And I was like, because nobody questions why when you go to the doctor in Ireland, it's 75 euro for 15 minutes. Like it's an accepted fact. But if you charge 100 euro for a tasting menu or 12 euro for a little tapa, I was like, I have no problem sitting down with you and explaining that to you. Uh, And then, because hopefully you'll walk away and say, oh yeah, now I get it. Because unfortunately, in most people's minds, food is, I suppose food is something that isn't central, but food is also something where, I I think that the the supermarket creates the lowest common denominator and that's their benchmark for what does a chicken cost what does um a potato cost and then it's like well why are you charging this and then it's just a process of of um i think of of education but it's definitely it's it's something i feel as well going forward and i hope post-covid i hope the restaurants that succeed will be the ones that are have greater transparency and the ones that create a community in their in their restaurants like as you were talking about where where staff know where they feel like they're more than just cogs in the wheel and they're just yeah. fulfilling a process where and, and whether that's a stagiaire, or whether it's the sous chef or the manager I, I think everyone needs to be able to feel oh yeah what i'm doing is important yeah. as opposed yeah. to what i'm doing i don't actually know what i'm doing i'm putting something in a box and it's going yeah. off to the next section i think that for me that's that's important yeah. i just want to finish up with one question um mm. and for me like it, it's uh, maybe it's it's uh, it's not an important question but for me like a mass I've always loved the music and the painting, <laughs> uh-huh. and I think it's. I don't know. For me, definitely when I when I went to a mass, and I mean, I've always I've loved I I studied art, and I I I, I think that the more that we can bring music and art into the the culture of a restaurant, in ways where, as you said, with hip hip hop and fine dining, and and changing that, I think for me that was a that was a real eye opener for for music in restaurants because a lot of time music in restaurants is just background it's it's just the elevator you know yeah. and uh and certainly that the beats of the hip hop certainly affect the way you eat in a mass if yeah. they, they affect the way you feel when you're eating yeah. and i i love that the, the the way that that psychology works and i think it's it's i i hope That people eating a mass, or or people are listening to this, that that really because your identity feeds into the music, it feeds into what's on the wall, and it's it's more than just oh like I'm sitting at uh, I'm sitting eating something, and and that that could also feed into the 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 furniture or whatever 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 else. And I think I think it's possibly going back to what you said about thinking outside the box. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's like we're we're more than just the sum of. I think you said this in the book. I think it's that. Our identities are more than just the restaurant. Yeah, you no, know, exactly. We have a pretty small amount of us in the restaurant, but we need to think holistically about how can I put more of myself in the restaurant as opposed to just the
1: dish I put in front of me. Yeah, uh, I mean, for, for me, and as the years go on, I mean, that identity becomes more and more extreme. I mean, Henrik, who's my one of my good, really close friends now, who does most of the art here or, or, or curates who comes and paints, um, as well as himself painting, has been like... We're like... Not even trying. Having him so connected in, in what... Go- I, I never tell him what to paint. I never tell him what to tell the other guys to and girls to paint when they come and paint. It's always... it You know, I, I have... We, we change it every year. So it's like there's six different versions of this room that have happened over the last eight years. And I never... Tell him, but it seems like as the restaurant, as we become more confident in what we're serving and, and the message we're trying to send and how and, and as we refine what we do, he refines what happens on the walls. And you know, everyone thinks of graffiti oh, graffiti artists or blah blah These people are like proper artists. Yeah, yeah. They understand colors in the room. They under. I mean, Henrik, I remember I think it was two, two versions of the room ago. I had told Henrik that we were gonna get new tables and the tables are gonna be a lighter color wood. And he was like, what? He's like, now I gotta change the whole, my whole idea of the room because the tables are lighter. And I mean, he's so conscious of tones and how they affect people when they eat and they sit there and it's, it's amazing. And, and all the people, I've, I've become friends with all the people that come and paint, you know, think it was about three years ago we had a uh a mural on the wall that was this kind of um blue and red kind of 3d and it was by a guy named insane 51 um from greece and i know and and this guy is like a legend in, in the graffiti world and um and so he had that that it's a very kind of modern way of doing graffiti and, and he that had been posted on a on some kind of graffiti website and it got 100,000s of, of views then people started calling henrik and said from around the world started calling henrik cuz henrik's quite known in the world that's what he does he travels around as commissioned pieces of art and uh to come paint at a mass when wow. when can i come paint at a mass when are, and um you know there's there's two there's two people um from Spain, uh, Harry Bones and Musa seventy one, that have come the last couple years to paint, and they've they're they're they've they've now become part of this restaurant, and they come every year from Spain to paint. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and you know, it's it's funny we're talking about this right now because literally last week I sat down with Christian, my director of operations, and I said on the website, th- this when you stand in this room now, it's essentially an art installation of different artists all over the place, and and it's very you can s- see six different defined pieces of art on the walls in here and uh and so i said we need to start we need to put this on the website now this needs to become part of the experience before they even arrive giving stories behind the artists where they come from and stuff like that um and also we're going to put like what's who what hip-hop artists are on the playlist right now and so just really going full in on that culture of the restaurant and, and where that comes from and and I say, and you know, I've said this before. It's like you know, I always found the best restaurants are the ones where you go and there's like a piece of the, the personality of the owner, or the chef, in you can feel that personality in the walls, um, in in the space. And for me, you know, I grew up listening to hip hop and, and being around graffiti, and it's like, this is when I told my wife we we're gonna do this when we opened. She's like, can you do that in a fine dining restaurant? Is that? <laughs> it's like, I don't know. We're gonna find out. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and I think that's the, that's, a, that's a good place to, to finish. I think that it's always, I mean, find people imagine that fine dining is 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 somehow like as we said black and white. It's very yeah. grey. There's yeah. there's a lot of grey, and I think that I think hopefully more into into the future we'll, I suppose as younger chefs enter the I suppose that the the, the post COVID world, I think there's going to be a lot more challenges to to open fine dining restaurants. But I think that the ones that try and think culturally or outside the box or to try and change things not necessarily only with the food i think that that's what um uh hopefully that's what's going to happen
1: yeah i I definitely my hopes are high for that as well but also just like as we talked about offering a more responsible restaurant just being conscious of of what kind of impact your restaurant's having both environmentally culturally economically (laughs) like all that stuff it's going to become more important it's not just going to be you know restaurants have been this like kind of mystical dream-like place but the reality of a restaurant has shown itself during covid so i think people are just going to operate more responsibly yeah that's, that's great listen yeah. matt i want to
0: i want to thank you uh for for taking time out to to talk to us uh you've been listening to the food in the edge podcast with uh myself jp and uh and matt orlando over in copenhagen you can check out our other podcasts on uh podbean and all other platforms see you next time